We started a series last weekend looking at the role and qualifications of elders in the life of the local church. We're going to be in that series this weekend and next weekend as well as we move toward the installation uh, of a a third elder here in the life of Redeemer Church. Uh, Many of you guys know that Paul and Carrie Cunningham, the Cunningham family, has been with us a little over a year now. And Paul has been meeting with us uh, as uh, myself and our other elder, Kevin Wheat, for the last nine months um, kind of on that on-ramp toward eldership here with us at Redeemer. And so we've been meeting with him, processing um, with him kind of some of the decisions that we've been making and things of that nature and seeing his character has been demonstrated in the way that he cares for his family, provides for his family, loves his family, seeing his character demonstrated in the way that he loves Jesus Church and has said, sign me up to serve in whatever capacity you need. And so as we move towards that next weekend, I thought it would be a good timing for us to unpack a little bit some of the qualifications and role of elders, those men who are called and qualified to shepherd Jesus Church. So last weekend we looked at quite extensively at this text out of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And if you missed last weekend, I encourage you to go check out the podcast and just kind of hear what we said with regards to some of the character qualifications that elders should have if they're going to serve Jesus' church as shepherds. This weekend, we turn our attention a little bit more to some of the um, abilities that they may have. We're going to continue to press into some of the character qualities as well because we couldn't finish that last week, or we could have, but we'd have been here through lunch. And so we chose to push pause and reserve some of those for this weekend as we continue to press into this text in 1 Timothy. So if you've got a Bible, we'll read 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 to 7. It'll be on the screen. If you don't have one, follow along with us. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes these words. He says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Now, if you notice what Paul says in this particular text, last week we saw that elders must have an aspiration to be elders. In order to, one of the first baseline qualifications is to serve as a shepherd in Jesus' church. You've got to want to be a shepherd, right? There's got to be an aspiration there toward this kind of good and beautiful work of teaching and tending to people, which we're going to unpack a little bit more next week as we look more at the role next week that we're charged with in 1 Peter chapter 5. But here in the text we saw last week, there's got to be an aspiration towards it. There's got to be a desire for it. Elders have to want to be elders. There's got to be an aspiration toward that work. Not only has it got to be an aspiration, but they can't do it alone. It's a team sport. All throughout the New Testament, there are these plurals when we refer, when we refer, to, refer to elders or overseers. It's never the elder or the overseer. It's elders plural, as if there was multiple elders in the life of each local church that were shepherding or together that were bearing the weight of this shepherd work together. So we saw that last week. We saw how there's got to be, the, they've got to possess patterns of character, even though they're not perfect, right? They don't line up on the tee box every time and drive it straight down the heart of the fairway. There's got to be patterns, though, of character in their life. But if you notice what we just read together in 1 Timothy chapter 3, out of the 13 or 14 qualifications Paul gives for an elder, or an overseer, or a shepherd here, 
the vast majority of them, 12 or 11 of the 13 or 12 of the 14, depending on how you count them, all refer to his character. The type of quality of character the person possesses, not necessarily the abilities he has. There's only two that necessarily refer to any kind of ability that he possesses. And one of those is in verse 2, where he talks about the ability to teach. And the other, a little further down, where he talks about the ability to manage his household well. Right? So those two are really the only abilities Paul outlines for us. Everything else is heavily weighted toward the character side. And so we saw much of that last week. This week, we want to take a look at some of these abilities that Paul says he must have. All right. So the first one is in verse 2 of chapter 3 where Paul says he's got to be able to teach. Now it's relatively straightforward when Paul says that. He's got to be able to teach. An elder's got to be able, has to be able to open up the Bible and explain the Bible to people. Has to be able to teach. It's relatively straightforward, but let's talk about how that might apply a little bit. There's a variety of venues in which someone might teach, aren't there? It's not just a one, kind of one-size-fits-all. Right? You, can, you can teach someone sitting down across the table from them in a coffee shop or in their kitchen, one-on-one, dialoguing, engaging, and opening the Bible and explaining it to them. That's a form of teaching. That's a venue in which some are gifted to teach in more of a one-on-one type of dynamic and relationship. Or you might be someone who's gifted to teach in, in a, a small group setting as you facilitate discussion. You open the Bible together with seven or eight other people, and you sit around, you talk about it, how it intersects with life and the things that God is teaching through the Scriptures. And so you can facilitate discussion one-on-one, small groups. Maybe you're a gifted teacher. You can stand in front of an audience in a classroom and lecture, kind of give a lecture on ideas or topics or passages. Or perhaps God's gifted some people to preach in, from the pulpit to where they stand up and explain and inform. Not only do they explain and inform, but they also inspire and they persuade. So there's both light that they're giving. In other words, they're kind of turning the lights on for people. So as they open the Bible, people are going, man, I didn't see that before. I begin to understand that now. But not only are they giving light sometimes, but they're also giving heat to where there's an awakening of affections and a stirring of the priorities of life to say, I want to move that direction. I see this truth now and I want to abide by it and live in it and obey it. And so there's a variety of venues in which people can teach. And I don't think Paul has in mind necessarily an elder always has to be able to stand up on a stage in front of an audience and preach. But he should be able to sit down across the table from someone and teach them about the Bible and about Jesus and about who God is and about what he's done. Or he should be able to facilitate discussion in the context of a group setting about the Bible and have enough theological awareness to be able to lead that discussion in a direction that's going to be healthy and edifying and build people up. Or perhaps he can stand in a classroom and give a lecture. Perhaps he can stand on a stage and preach a sermon. But Paul says there's got to be at one of those levels an ability for an elder to teach. Now, regardless of what venue he might be teaching in, there's also a variety of styles that somebody might teach with, right? you got some people in churches, some elders in churches, some pastors in churches who may teach, and they, they have more kind of a professorial style, so, right? so they're really digging, and they've got stuff up on the screen, and they're highlighting stuff, and circling stuff, and underlining stuff, and they're really digging deep within the text, and kind of like a professor in a classroom as they teach, where you have others who are a little bit more prophetic in the way they declare things. 
right? As they expose sin, as they talk about the Bible and kind of help it intersect with life and kind of more of a prophetic type style. You got some people who are more indirect and you got people who are more direct, right? People who kind of circle around a little bit the, the issue in the room versus people who try and tackle it straightforward. So you got all these different styles of teaching as well, venues in which you can teach and styles with which you can teach. There's some who are more academic and some who are more prophetic, some who are more professorial, some who are more direct, some who are more indirect, some who rely heavily on stories. And all they really do is kind of appeal to the emotion, whereas some who rely heavily on argumentation and all they really appeal to is the logic. And then you got people who can also bring both of those together to where they're engaging the heart and also informing the mind. And so there's a variety of styles of teaching as well. There's venues in which you can teach and styles with which you can teach. But Paul says an elder, a shepherd in Jesus' church, has to be able to open the Bible and teach people. He has to be able to teach. And it would seem that based upon what Paul says in other places, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, where he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied with his power. It would seem that for Paul in his mind, when he thinks of teaching and preaching, he's more concerned with substance than he is style. He's more concerned with substance than he is style. So in other words, for Paul, he's more concerned with, did he, was he clear? Did he open the Bible and show people Jesus? Did he open the Bible and talk to people about what the text says? Was he a biblically faithful teacher, not just a very gifted orator or a very gifted comedian and stand up to entertain people, but did he actually say what the Bible says in a way that challenges people's assumptions? He says, I didn't come, he says to the church at Corinth, I didn't come to you with very eloquent wisdom. In other words, I know what you're looking for, church, he says, and you're looking for someone who can stand up and have all kinds of pithy sayings and all these alliterations, right, where you kind of have the first letter of every point that you make kind of goes down a line and it spells a word and you walk away with that word, right? And he says, I didn't come to you with that kind of, kind of oratory skill, but I came to you with the bare cross of Jesus Christ. And I talked to you about Jesus over and over and over and over again because I didn't want the decisions that you were making as you sought to align your lives with who God is and what he was doing. I didn't want it to be based on my persuasive abilities but upon the power of the cross to revolutionize, transform, and change your life. Paul's more concerned with substance than he is style with regards to the ability to teach. And I think that what he has to say has something to say to us as a church in 2015 as well. Because what I've, what I've found is that there's a lot of people in our, in our culture, particularly in the evangelical subculture, who when they show up to church on Sunday mornings, what they're basically looking for is a Sunday morning sitcom, right? They're looking for a Sunday morning sitcom. They want somebody to kind of entertain them. They want 20, a 22-minute episode, a few commercial breaks in there, but a 22-minute episode right, with a string of well-placed jokes executed with impeccable comedic timing to where they, there might be a little moral that kind of ties everything together at the very end, right? But they want a little moral to the story, but they want somebody to make them laugh and somebody uh, to entertain them and to be engaging, as opposed to somebody who opens the Bible and says, thus saith the Lord. Paul says what you should be looking for and the way that you should evaluate faithful shepherds in Jesus' church is not so much on their style, but on their substance. 
Not necessarily how they are saying it, but what are they saying? Paul says that should be the primary concern that you possess as you evaluate someone who can preach and teach. Richard Baxter, in his book, The Reformed Pastor, said this with regards to preaching in his day and time, which I think also is incredibly applicable to ours. He said, of all preaching in the world that speaks not stark lies, in other words, of all the preaching in the world that doesn't just, is out, isn't just bold-faced lies, I hate that preaching which tends to make the hearers laugh or to move their minds with tickling levity and affect them as stage plays used to do instead of affecting them with the holy reverence of the name of God. Baxter says there's a type of preaching that all it really does is cause people to be entertained in the same way that in his day stage plays did and our day sitcoms do. He says, is the preaching, does it move you with reverence to look at God and his holiness and to take him seriously? Listen, we live in a culture where the majority of what we do with the hours that we have in the week is seek entertainment, right? Videos on Facebook, pictures on Instagram, um, episodes on Netflix and Hulu, movies that we attend and spend hundreds of dollars a year going to, to watch a big screen. Is there anything wrong with being entertained? I don't think there's anything wrong with being entertained, but this is not the place for entertainment. Because I think what we've done is we've taken that highest value in our culture. Does it entertain me? Does it make me laugh? Does it, does it kind, of, kind of make me feel good about myself whenever I leave? And we've kind of imported that into the church as opposed to the value of, does it expose the holiness of God? Does it show God to be big and mighty and powerful? Someone who's beyond my comprehension. Paul says, I'm more concerned with substance than style. Because there's some preaching that kind of smells a little bit more like Febreze, right? We all know our lives smell pretty bad. Okay, every week, whenever we come in here, we all know that we've been in the, in the, the mud and in the dirt and in kind of the, the mess of life all week long. And what we're, maybe what we really want is somebody to spray a little Febreze over us, right? Kind of like the couch at home when the dog's been laying on it too long, right? We spray a little bit of Febreze over it, kind of cover the scent. But I think what the church is in need of, and I say the church, I mean the American church in general is in need of not Febreze but smelling salts, kind of preaching that whenever you come in, you wave it under your nose, whoa, it arouses a consciousness to the holiness of God, to the greatness of God, to the glory of God, to the majesty of God, to the beauty of the cross. And if I have to make a choice between one of the two, man, give me some smelling salts every Sunday. Because I've been, I've been immersed in Febreze all week long. Paul says you should be more concerned about substance than style. There are some men who can get on a stage with their natural charisma and with their abilities, their oratory skills, and with their abilities to alliterate points and create memorable hooks for you. They can get up on stage and they can, man, there's some guys who have such natural charisma, they can sell ice to an Eskimo and sand to an Arab, all right? They can because people are just drawn to them. They have such natural abilities. 
Listen, the question is not, not do they entertain me, but are they faithful to what the scriptures say? And do they say it in a way that arouses me from a slumber at times and awakens me to why I'm here and what God has called me to? Substance over style. Listen to what else Paul says. There's another reason I think that he means this. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Paul's talking to Titus about elders that he leaves. He tells Titus, I left you on the island of Crete to put everything in order and appoint elders in every town. And he goes on to give another abbreviated list of these qualifications. And listen to what he says in Titus 1.9. Paul tells Titus, he says that elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Paul says, elders need to hold fast to sound teaching, to sound doctrine, to the instruction they've received as it has been taught to them so they can turn around and, and, and instruct others and rebuke those who are, who are sliding away from the things that we have held to, Paul says. So an elder's got not just to have eloquent words of wisdom and pithy sayings and to be entertaining whenever he gets up on a stage or a platform, but rather he's got to have some substance because he's got to teach what has been taught to him and he's got to correct those who oppose it. There's got to be some substance to it. Paul says he's got to teach the trustworthy word is taught. In other words, faithful shepherds in Jesus' church, they don't have the, the, uh, the latitude to make stuff up. But he says, as it has been taught to them. In other words, Paul has in mind the apostles who had walked with Jesus and ate with Jesus and ministered with Jesus and been sent out by Jesus, that they would take the words that Jesus taught to them. They would instruct disciples unto them who would then take the words that had been taught to the apostles by Jesus and instruct others, who would then take those words and instruct others, who would take those words and instruct others and keep coming up underneath that generation after generation after generation after generation to raise up Men as elders and shepherds in Jesus' church who are faithful to the trustworthy word as taught. Not as they have license to make up. And so Paul says, listen, they've got to be faithful to Scripture. They've got to be faithful to sound doctrine for two reasons, he says, because they're going to have to instruct others in it and rebuke those who contradict it. Listen, John Calvin, when he commented on this text, he said this. He said, the pastor ought, or the elder ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both, for he who is deeply skilled in it will able, be able both to govern those who are teachable and refute the enemies of truth. He says he's got to hold to that trustworthy sound doctrine because he's got to instruct people in it and rebuke those or correct those who are erring from it. Got to do both of those things. And so Paul says an elder should be able to teach, whether it be on a platform, in a stage, in a classroom, in a small group setting, or across the table, he should be able to teach sound truths to other individuals to help them see the realities of life through the lens of who God has created them to be. And so she should be able to take truths like the Trinity, right? A very mysterious doctrine. How can God be three persons in one essence, right? We can't wrap our minds around that because our minds are limited and finite. But she should be able to take that doctrine and go, listen, in your home, when we talk about men being heads and women being helpmates, when we talk about the way God has ordered creation, 
and the way that God has given responsibility to men to lead their families. We're not saying that men are any more important than women. We're not saying that they have any greater inherent value than women. They are equal persons, but they have different roles in the life of the family because in the Godhead itself, there are equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that have different roles in the carrying out of redemptive history and God's purposes. See, we need, you need men as shepherds in Jesus' church who can, who can take those doctrines like the Trinity and help people see the practical realities and expressions of them for their lives and how they live. But also to be able to correct those who are erring from sound teaching. So when somebody comes into the church and they begin to say things like, man, there's more. No, Jesus isn't the only way, right? There's all these other paths. And ultimately, you walk down all these different roads and they lead to the same destination. Men who can say, no, that's not quite how it works. Jesus says he is the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through him. You need people who have the courage and clarity to be able to correct those who are erring from sound teaching, but also to be able to show its practicalities and the realities of their lives. Paul says they've got to be able to teach. No matter what venue, no matter what style, with some substance, because they're holding firm to this word they've received and they're delivering it to others and using it to correct those who are erring from it. So he's got to be able to teach. So here's what this means, right? For those of you who may have, have sensed a stirring, we talked about this last week a little bit, or an aspiration for eldership. If theology for you, and you have an aspiration for eldership, and theology for you is something that's dry and dusty and kind of reserved for seminary and classrooms, and really you want to get on to the practical things and, and, and you know, doing these serving people, not that that's bad, not that that's to be um, talked about in a demeaning kind of way. Those are absolutely necessary. But if theology for you is dry and dusty, is reserved for Bible college and seminary classrooms, then eldership may not be for you. Whether or not you have an aspiration for it or not, it may not be for you. Right? If reading some books with footnotes in them right, turns you off, then this office may not be for you. So if you find within yourself an aspiration toward eldership or toward pastoring and shepherding in Jesus' church, is there a hunger to know what God has said? and to order our lives and practice around it? Are you willing to press deeply into the truths that God reveals in Scripture and to read deeply and use that as the foundation for, the tr for true and vibrant and transparent and rich and lasting community? If for you theology is something, doctrine is something that's dry and dusty, you may need to temper that desire for eldership. But if it's something... It's something that you long for and that you love. You love the truths that God has revealed about who he is. You love the truths that what God has revealed about who we are. You love the realities of helping people understand those things. Then maybe that desire doesn't need to be tempered but tested. Maybe you don't need to pull back the reins but push them forward. He's got to be able to teach. Second thing, 
ability-wise that Paul says in this text in 1 Timothy 3 is he's got to be able to lead well not only in public but in private. He's got to lead well not only in public but in private. Right? There are some men who can stand in, in public, right? And everyone looks at them and they go, man, that dude has got it all together, right? right? He's, got, he's got, got his wife over here, his kids over here, and he's got all these things going on in his business, and he's got all these things going on uh, in, his, in his kind of his personal, his, his, his hobbies. He gets to do everything that he wants to do. He's got everything going on when really behind the scenes, his life and his family is a train wreck. And Paul says, you can't have men who lead well only in public but not in private as elders. Listen to what he says in the text. In verse 4, he tells Timothy that those who would aspire to the office must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. There's got to be a di- an element that in private, when no one else is watching, no one else in the church is looking, that he's coming underneath his wife and underneath his family to serve them and to care for their needs, and to provide for them, and to disciple them, and to lead them. Now, why does Paul say that? He gives a rationale for it in verse 5. Listen to what he says. He says, The rationale under that requirement is for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In other words, if somebody doesn't have the ability to manage his household, how will he notice the difference in the language? He didn't say how will he manage God's church, but how will he care for God's church? In other words, I think what Paul has in mind by management of his household is a care for his family. Because if he doesn't care for his family, isn't willing to sacrifice and serve his family, how is he ever going to sacrifice? sacrifice for and serve Jesus' church, the broader, bigger family of God. He says, if you don't see a willingness at times to lay aside his agenda for the sake of his wife and his kids, how will he ever lay aside his agenda for the sake of the church? If you don't see a willingness to instruct his kids in the truths of Scripture and to make that a priority in his home, why do you think Why do you think he would make that a priority in the church? If he's unwilling to discipline his kids, right? Keep them submissive, not locked in a closet, okay? In chains, but keep them submissive to where they're respectful and obedient because he's instituted loving discipline in his home to correct their wayward hearts at times as opposed to giving them rule of the roost. If you don't see him exercising loving discipline in the home, how is it that you think he's going to exercise any kind of loving discipline in the church? If you do not see any passion for the welfare of his family, what leads you to believe there's going to be a passion for the welfare of God's family, the household of God? Paul says if he doesn't manage his family well, care for his family well, why do you think he's going to care for the church? There's no reasonable expectation that you should have if he's not able to lead well, not only in public, but in private. Notice what else Paul says. We'll talk about a couple of more character qualities this morning before we're done. Notice what else he says. He move, moving on in verse 7, Paul says, Not only must he lead well in private, not only in public, and be able to teach, but also, Paul says, he must be well thought of in the city. He must be well thought of in the city. In verse 7, Paul says, He must be well thought of by outsiders. In other words, people outside of the church, people in the city or in the countryside, in the surrounding community, he must be well thought of. 
And notice the rationale why. So that there would not be, would not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. In other words, he wouldn't bring disgrace upon himself or upon the church. In other words, Paul is saying, whenever people in the city look at a particular elder or a shepherd or a pastor in Jesus' church, their first thought should not be, really? That guy? Right? With the way that he does business? With the way that he cheats on his taxes? With the way that he speaks to and about his family? That guy? With, how, with, that, with the lack of work ethic that he's got? That guy? When people look at an elder, they shouldn't say, with, with that self-indulgent lifestyle that he lives? With kind of elevating himself as the, to a position of the spotlight and every chance that he gets? That guy? When people in the community, when people in the city or people in the countryside look at a particular elder, they shouldn't go, man, that's confusing. (laughs) Because his reputation with the people that he interfaces with outside the church is a whole lot different than the one perhaps that he has with those that he interfaces with inside the church. Paul says that he wouldn't fall into disgrace. In other words, he wouldn't bring a black eye on himself or Jesus' church. And Jesus knows there's been enough of those in the last 20 years. Between sexual scandals, misappropriation of funds, abuses of power, there's been enough of those. So that when people look at the church, it wouldn't raise all kinds of objections and obstacles for them to overcome, not because of Jesus, but because of who's leading that local body. They wouldn't go, that guy? Because see, what Satan wants to do more than anything is this arm the gospel message in the life of a community, through the life of a church. He would love to disarm the gospel by creating all kinds of objections and all kinds of obstacles, not with necessarily the person of Jesus, but with his under-shepherds in the church. So he must be well thought of in the city. Have a good reputation with people who are even outside the church as a person of character, as a person of integrity. But notice the final thing in this passage in 1 Timothy. I'll say it this way. In verse 6, Paul tells Timothy that an elder or a shepherd or a pastor, he must have some tenure as a believer. He must have some tenure as a believer. He must not be a recent convert is the way that Paul says it to Timothy. Must not be a recent convert. Listen, when we went to uh, Colorado a couple of months ago, took our students up there for camp, we had a family from our church come with us, and they brought uh, about a six-month-old infant, okay? So we flew up there on the plane, and I was so, I was grateful that in God's providence, I was up here on the plane, and they were back here, right? Um, but actually, she did really well on the plane ride up there, and once we got there, she did amazing, right? And so as we got there and got settled in, a couple of things that we did for the activities throughout the week is that we went on some hikes up into the mountains, you know, the mountains in Estes Park, some of those areas surrounding um, the, the YMCA of the Rockies campground there. We went some hikes up through the hip, foothills and the mountains, and so as we, as we always had people who were kind of leading the way on the, on the trail. But listen, one of, the things that I can, one of the things I can tell you is that as we wound up and through those paths and across some of those uh, dips and dives, is that we never took that six-month-old infant and set her at the trailhead and said, take off, we're going to follow you. 
Right? Evelyn, lead us, lead us where we need to go. She doesn't know where she's going. She's an infant. She can't even move without some assistance. And in the same way that you wouldn't take an infant and set it at the front of the line and say, hey, lead us. Take us into the promised land. We're following you every step of the way. Paul says you don't take a recent convert and put them in a position to lead in that kind of capacity. They've got to have some tenure as a believer. They've got to have some tenure as a believer. And here's why. Look at the rationale underneath the requirement. He says, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. In other words, there'd be pride that would rise in his life. He'd become conceited and think it's about him and not about Jesus. He'd become puffed up and swollen, right? Get a big head about who he is. And I think this happens in at least two practical ways. One is you wouldn't want somebody at the head of the line trying to lead you into places they've never been before. Someone who's trying at the head of the line who hasn't yet really come to grips with the depths of depravity in their own hearts and souls. And the sufficiency of Jesus and the gospel to be the cure for that depravity. You would not want someone who has not yet dug a little bit under the surface and begun to see some of the landmines in their own heart up on the stage leading you to try and dodge some of them in your life. Or sitting across a table from you leading you to try and dodge some of those landmines in your own life. But you want somebody who's over the course of time, as a t- they have a little bit of tenure as a believer, so God's Spirit's begun to work in them, has begun to root out some of that stuff, or at least expose it to where they begin to see the depths of their depravity. Listen, I've been a Christian now for 22 years. God saved me when I was 15. I'll be, well, 23. I'll be 38 next week. So God, for, for 23 years... And over the course of that time, one of the things that I've found as the Spirit has continued to bring about some degree of sanctification in my life, a lot slower than I want it most of the time, one of the things that I've found is that the more and longer that I walk with Jesus, the more I begin to see even the depths of my own sin. So it's not necessarily always the more and longer that I walk with Jesus, right? I become on some super spiritual plane up here where I am exempt from all sin. But the more I walk with Jesus and the longer that I walk with Jesus and the longer the Spirit has to continue to reshape and remold and try and put this broken person back together in the image of Jesus, the more I realize just how deep that root of sin runs. You don't want someone who's trying to help you navigate and cultivate holiness who has not yet seen that that root runs a lot deeper than what they imagined initially. Because they're a little prideful. I think they've got it all together. Paul says you want somebody who realizes they don't have it all together. And there's only one who does. And they keep pointing people to him. But also... I think this is incredibly important. And here's why. Because if someone doesn't have a little bit of tenure as a believer and they become puffed up and conceited, they begin to think at times that they are the groom and not just the groomsmen. Right? And that what people really need is them and not Jesus. Right? I've done a lot of weddings over the course of the last 17, 18 years of ministry. 
And I have yet to see, I was married myself and did quite a, done quite a few of them, and I have yet to see on any occasion, right, standing before all the friends and family who are gathered there and the groom's over here to my left and he's all decked out in his tux or his casual linens or whatever it is that he's wearing depending upon the environment or the venue. He's all dressed and ready with a big smile on his face and he's looking toward the back door back there and as soon as that door opens, his bride then appears. The radiance of her beauty is overwhelming and she begins to make her way down the aisle. I have yet to see a groomsman step around the side in front of the groom and kind of wink at her and say, come on, baby. If, if and when that happens, it's not going to end well for that groomsman. Okay, it's not going to end well. But listen, whenever we become puffed up and you get take a recent convert, somebody who doesn't have much tenure as a believer, and you put them into the office of an elder, and all of a sudden everybody's looking to them for direction, everybody's looking to them for guidance, everybody's looking to them for some kind of some, some word from God, they begin to think that now I'm they, they begin to rise and, and their, their minds become very, very swollen with this idea that I'm not just a groomsman who's trying to point people to the groom who's coming back to receive his bride one day, but I'm the groom. What people really need in this church is me. And if you remove me from the equation, this church is going to fall apart. Listen, we live in a culture of celebrity pastors. Of celebrity pastors who are at the center of their church's ministry. And that ministry is built around their personality or around their charisma or around their oratory skills. And on more than one occasion, you've had men who were always intended just to be groomsmen begin to think they were the groom. And Paul says, you run a great risk of that taking place if you take someone who is a recent convert, a new believer, still an infant in Christ, and you raise them to a platform and a position to shepherd, to teach, and to tend other people. But if you take someone who's got some tenure, and they understand they're groomsmen, then what you should hear from them over and over and over and over again is not look to me, but look to Jesus. Not come here because you get entertained, but come here because we want to week in and week out, open the scriptures and talk about the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God and see him begin to reorder your life. And put you back together in the image of Christ. You need groomsmen who are pointing you to the groom. Because one day, he's going to come back to claim his bride. And I, for one, don't want to be standing at the end of the aisle trying to seduce her. So Paul says, listen. It's vitally important that elders can teach and not in a way that has substance over style. So they're not pointing to themselves, but to Jesus over and over and over again. They've got to be able to lead not only in very public settings where everyone is looking at them and giving them applause and accolades and pats on the back, but when no one else can see in the privacy of their own homes and families. 
They've got, Paul says, they must be well thought of in the city so they don't bring a black eye on the church. And they cannot be, they cannot be a recent convert. They've got to have some tenure. And so as we look for elders in the life of this church, these are the things that we are looking for. We are looking for men who want to be elders. Because I don't want to stand there and have to twist somebody's arm to get them to go visit someone in the hospital. I don't have to twist somebody's arm to get them to take someone to coffee and talk to them about their marriage. I don't have to twist somebody's arm, but somebody who's moving towards that because they're accessible, they're hospitable. Looking for men who want to be elders, who want to be a part of a team, men who want who want to begin to, who are exhibiting some of those patterns of character, even not, they're not perfections of character, those patterns of character that are necessary. Men who are able to teach, regardless of the venue that they're in. They've got some ability to teach. They're grounded in the substance of the scriptures to whether they can articulate doctrine in a clear way, whether across the table or from a stage. They're well thought of in the city. They lead well in private. And they've got some tenure as a believer. So that they're not, they're not constantly looking for the spotlight, but all they really want to be is a faithful flashlight to keep pointing people to Jesus. That's what we're looking for. And that's why the on-ramp for us here at Redeemer is 9 to 12 months, because you can't see those things in a month with someone. You need to be able to see those things over the course of time seasons, winter, spring, summer, fall, to be able to see those things fleshed out in their lives. So our elders here take that seriously. We want men of character and convictions on the team with us. And if you have found over the course of the last two weeks that God's awakening and aspiration for that in you, come talk to me. Come talk to Kevin. We would love to visit with you about that. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning thanking you for your grace, for your word, for the fact that it speaks so clearly to how your church is to be led and who is to lead it. And Father, as we look next week to unpack more of what that leadership looks like or what that role looks like, God, I pray that we would not do look at, look at the role without looking at the, at the type of men who are supposed to fill it. That we would keep coming back to these truths over and over and over again. So there would be a trustworthiness that's developed, a culture that's created. where there are men who know it's not about them, but about you. Where there are men who love and set aside their agenda for their families. And at times, their agenda, their personal agenda for the church. Sacrificing their time and energy. Who are able to teach and explain the truths you've revealed in your word. Who apply themselves to study. And take that seriously who are well thought of by those outside of the church. So they would not cause the testimony of the church which you have obtained by your blood to fall into disgrace. 
Father, if there's any men in the room this morning who find themselves an awakening of longings and desires and aspirations toward that noble work of overseeing, God, I pray, I pray, you would lead us to them and them to us as elders. And that we would begin to test and see. Father, I pray in the moments ahead that your grace will be more clear to us than it was when we came in. As we come to the table and we think about Jesus whose body was broken and blood was shed for this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.